and welcome to Self-Help Sat Nav, the podcast show where we talk about self-help tools that you can put to use in your own life. We cover health, well-being and anything related to that. Today I have the pleasure of Sherry Taylor joining me on this interview. Hello Sherry. Hello Jim, thank you so much for having me. It's great, welcome. Um, tell us a bit about yourself. So I am a specialist dietitian based in Birmingham but I also offer virtual appointments as well and many of my clients come to me having tried many many different kinds of diets Uh, they've been struggling with their weight for a long time or they have maybe another medical condition like irritable bowel syndrome chronic fatigue fibromyalgia and they need somebody to give them help and support in terms of what it is that they should be eating to help them feel a little bit better But inevitably, because my approach is quite all-inclusive and comprehensive, we talk about many things in their life, so stress and sleep and what drives their eating behaviour, all of those types of things as well. Uh, Yeah, hence how we kind of met each other not Mm -hmm. too long ago, isn't it? We've been talking about some of those things. Yeah, because I find so many of my clients have, they may also struggle with a bit of stress or anxiety or depression and... I wasn't feeling like I had enough tools to be able to help them in the way that I wanted to, so I came to you to get a bit more help and support in that area. Yeah. And we were talking about doing this, weren't we? And um, you wrote a blog post recently on... What was the subject? It was on sugar addiction. And I'm so glad you wanted to do this podcast on this topic because it's so fascinating talking to you because we have slightly different perspectives on this issue. So I thought it may be of tremendous interest to your clients as well as mine. So it really bothers me, all the people in the media, like the extreme food bloggers and and the media, and they're trying to make people believe that they're addicted to sugar, that there's something wrong with them, that there's something wrong with eating sugar. And not that I encourage people to eat copious amounts of sugar of things that have no other nutritional value. But I'm not sure the way people are viewing food at the moment is particularly helpful. Um, And so I wanted to get your opinion on, do you think sugar can be an addiction? Because I'm not convinced that it is. Well, it was interesting you uh, talking about that, because I used to work in addiction services, not for sugar, but (laughs) but for alcohol and for drug addiction. And... um, there's, 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 there's often been something in, in, a, in the media that sort of says that cannabis is a gateway drug to other drugs, um, which, is, which is a theory. I don't know that I've come a lot, across a lot of data that talks about, you know, what is the gateway drug. Um, but I guess what we mean by gateway drug is that cannabis then, um, if you smoke cannabis, you're more likely to then go and use other drugs. And there might be some research around that. But um, one of the theories that... I and some of my colleagues had at the time was that sugar was the gateway drug. That when people have sugar and they repeatedly have sugar, that this is the one of the early first experiences of consuming something, of having a substance that has that causes an immediate change in your experience, and that that's powerful because if you're not wanting to feel the way that you're feeling. You can, you've learned through a petition that if you have some sugar, you can change the way that you're feeling very quickly. Um, and if that then becomes a pattern, 
and that then becomes something that um, can grab hold of you and have negative consequences. I mean, and I think that word, and I guess that's where you're coming from, is that that word addiction has negative consequences to it. Rarely do we talk about being addicted to um, you know, seeing our friends or um, you know, showing people how much we care about them. Or broccoli, did you say? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I have never met anyone who's addicted to broccoli before. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like this bad thing, isn't it? We tend to say we're addicted to things that don't help us, that have negative consequences. Well, yeah, and not that long ago I met someone who was, she was so anxious and stressed out because she really believed that she was addicted to sugar because she didn't like to eat porridge unless it had sugar on top. And I wouldn't in any way consider that addiction and it makes me so sad to see that people are feeling anxious about eating food now because I don't think that's remotely helpful you know in terms of health and well-being if you're always stressed out about was this the right thing to eat or isn't this the right thing to eat or am I going to get it wrong or is my health going to be affected it's like it can sometimes create so much anxiety for people and I think a lot of it's unnecessary so um the, the examples you're describing, people have become worried that they are addicted to mm. sugar or, or another type of food. Yeah. And that's had a, a worsening effect. They're not just, they're now worried that they've become addicted to it and what that means. Yeah, and I think that's where I'm coming from. It's like, I guess there's two, a few points to it. Number one is that is framing it as an addiction because that makes it sound like it's not within your control, that there's a chemical change has taken place in your brain or something is going on physiologically that's completely not within your control and therefore I'm an addict and therefore I sometimes think people feel like they're powerless against it or that making trying to make changes isn't going to be successful or helpful and, and I'm not sure framing it in that way is necessarily the most helpful way of going about it. Hmm. Hmm. I was looking up the definition of addiction and I looked, I looked at the NHS website, and that talked about um, not having control over something. So similar to what you were just saying there, not having control over a substance, um, not having control over an activity. Um, but you have a slightly different definition yourself. Yeah. So we, yeah, I was thinking, well, how do you define addiction? I guess someone who comes from a psychology background who takes an interest in behavior is that I would see addiction as um, as a consequence really of engaging repeatedly in something and it becomes powerful because it helps you avoid some other experience that's maybe more painful mm. um, so it's natural to um, want to avoid that um, and I would agree. I, I think I have no issue with, if that's the way de addiction is being defined, I would agree with you. I think many of my clients feel the same way. Mm. But I guess it, I think we were having a discussion earlier in terms of, well, how is addiction being defined? Because I've seen different um, infographics on Facebook that are making sugar addiction they're defining it basically like the normal rise and fall in your blood sugar levels and you know when your blood sugar levels start to fall how you get a bit of a craving or if you wait too long before you eat something and your blood sugars are low you will have cravings for starchy and sweet things and that's normal like I don't consider that to be 
something horrible that we should necessarily be trying to make people think it's an issue. You know, that's normal. And yeah, there's ways to manipulate it and there's ways to kind of minimize those peaks and troughs in your blood sugars. And But that's a normal physiological experience. That's a normal physiological reaction to sugar. So I don't want people to confuse what's normal with something that's, you know, negative or bad or, you know, those types of things. Right, yeah, yeah. So you can be led down the garden path here mm. using... Uh, particular indicators and suggesting that that is tells you when if somebody's addicted or not when it doesn't actually mean that yeah exactly mm. so you're talking about craving there being an element when I think of addiction I think mm. about craving mm. as well that we have a craving to do the thing that we uh, are addicted to and that craving can overtake us and I think particularly when people are trying to stop doing something that um, that craving can get more intense. Yes. So if I'm trying to stop alcohol or if I'm trying to stop taking a drug or if I'm trying to stop um, um, spending all my money on, um, you know, internet shopping, that um, as I try to resist that, my cravings get more intense. Yes, and I think anyone who's ever been on, like, a weight loss diet would probably know that to be true. As soon as you tell yourself that you can't, quote-unquote have a brownie or ice cream or chocolate, inevitably that's what you want more than anything else for yeah. those foods. Yeah. And as you want it, I guess kind of stuff's going on in your body as well, isn't it? That forms part of that experience, that desire, that want. I think there's two parts to the cravings. I think there is a physiological element, like I was saying earlier, like, yes, if your blood sugar levels are starting to go lower or if it's been a long time since you've eaten anything and you do have genuine physical hunger going on if you let it just carry on and get too severe then yes you do have cravings for sugar or starchy or sweet things i i personally interpret that as just a cue or a clue that my body needs food i don't interpret that as oh i must eat sugar like, yes, craving sugar and starchy things is like, oh, I'm hungry. Yeah, that would make sense because it's four hours since I've eaten. Mm. You know, so it's how you're interpreting those signals that your body's giving you. Yes. I sometimes notice that I crave sugar when I'm thirsty. Interesting. Yeah. And so, and I, and so the first thing I think about might be, oh, I want a biscuit or I want a bit of chocolate. Um, but if I slow myself down and notice that I'm reacting in that way, I start to notice that I'm just, I'm really thirsty. Wow, that's fascinating. And um, I wonder whether there's a bit in there that you know I've, I've probably you know like a lot of people I've liked I like chocolate and I know that you know I've there've been patterns where I've kind of eaten chocolate like pretty regularly kind of every day for a period of time and I wonder whether I've just sort of trained myself in when I've been feeling like that that chocolate is the thing that I do when I'm feeling like that. But, like, as I've got older, I'm starting to kind of maybe have more awareness and that I'm starting to discover this other thing where actually what I really need here is water. I'm dehydrated. Yeah, and a lot of it is about really listening to your body and kind of understanding those signals. And it takes a bit of time, and sometimes you get it wrong, and that's okay. But it's like slowing down to actually figure out what is that, that craving? What is that about? Is it... It's been a long time since I've eaten something and therefore my blood sugar's low. Is it that you're thirsty? Or is it you just need a break? You know, because 
for a lot of people, a lot of my clients, there's an element of, and the terms that they often use is that they, they eat chocolate, for example, to treat or reward themselves. Mm -hmm. And the question that I then ask them is, well, what else do you do in your life to treat or reward yourself other than eat chocolate? And usually people are at a bit of a loss to come up with an answer. Right. Yeah. So then is it really, so what is the chocolate about there? Is the chocolate about low blood sugars? Is the chocolate about treating yourself? Is it, are you trying to distract yourself from something else you don't want to do? Is it the only time you allow yourself to sit down and like relax for two minutes? I mean, it, it can be interpreted in many different ways. Yeah, that's really interesting. Because if somebody's saying, well, then primarily it's about treating myself. Mm. Yeah, it changes the, the perspective completely, doesn't it? Now it's like, well, then if you've got a lack of other ways of mm. rewarding yourself, then that points you in that direction, isn't it? Let's expand your ways of rewarding yourself. Exactly. And that's what I spend a lot of time doing with my clients. Like, often people will come to me because they think, I have an issue with my weight or, you know, the GP said I've got some kind of medical condition. Therefore, the problem is food and food is the problem I need to fix. But often I find that sometimes food is the problem, you know, or the food choices that they're making. But I would say 75, 80% of the time it isn't, you know, that there's something else going on and that I don't have to ask usually too many questions to uncover other things that are going on for people. So... They're not sleeping well, they're really stressed out, they have no other way to treat or reward themselves. You know, there's many, many things going on. And the issue maybe is manifesting as food, but there's other stuff going on there, which is why I first approached you, because I needed other ways to help my clients, you know, come up with, if, if, if eating chocolate is the only way you have to treat or you reward yourself, how can I help you build up other strategies? Mm -hmm. You know, and at what point... Do I need to refer on to somebody with um, more of a specialty in your area? Mm -hmm. What's going through my mind is, is thinking about the word comfort. Mm. And I wanted to ask you, how much do you think there's a the, the crossover, is there a crossover between treat and reward and comfort? Do you think people are meaning similar things when they say that? I think sometimes it's different. Um, I think in some cases, the person may mean the same thing, but in other circumstances, I'm thinking maybe not. I, I just know with, with women who have children, for example, it's very common for them after the kids go to bed, that that is their time. Mm. And they usually will use that time to eat or reward themselves, you know? And is that an element of comfort at those times? Maybe. Or maybe they're just tired. Or maybe they haven't had any of their other needs met all day. You know, there's, there's many different ways that could be interpreted. And, and that's what I encourage my clients to do. It's like, well, I, I don't know the answer to that question. Like, only you know the answer. Like, what, what is that food serving for you? What's driving that eating behavior? You know, and they really need to think you know, hard about, well, really, what is? Because I don't know the answer. Yeah. So I'm really beginning to question now whether seeing Fuji's addiction is helpful or accurate at all. Because mm. you said something else to me earlier, which was that unlike alcohol, 
or drugs. Mm. You can't do without food. No, you can't. <laughs> and so commonly what's a, a treatment for those types of addictions is abstinence. Yeah. But we can't abstain from food, although we might be able to abstain from certain types of food, like sugary foods. Yeah, although it goes back to our very first point, which is as soon as you tell yourself you can't have something, then you want it more. Right. And I think maybe that's why people are struggling so much, because I'm on various Facebook groups for people who have challenges around emotional eating, comfort eating. And I know one of the one of the strategies, I, I don't promote it, but, you know, other people promote is is abstinence, you know, from, say, chocolate or whatever your quote unquote addictive food is. But if I think just from a purely like nutrition scientific perspective, so a piece of bread, for example, all those things that taste starchy, you know, bread, potatoes, whatever, all that is is a whole bunch of molecules of sugar all linked together like, like a train, basically. And when you eat them, that all gets broken down into sugar, right? And then you've got the natural sugar that's in fruit, and then you've got like the added sugar that's in chocolate and different things. So which sugar are we talking about? You know, if you're going to abstain from sugar, well, are you then abstaining from fruit? Are you abstaining from anything with carbohydrates in it? Like, how are they defining that? Who's defining that? Right. Who makes that decision? Yeah. So you get refined sugars, don't you? Mm. In, like, manufactured products. Yeah. Do you, do you separate those, those sugars out from the natural sugars that you get in raw food? Well, there's, there's no, like, little conveyor belt or there's no little person in your stomach that like analyzes the food when it comes in. It's like, nope, this goes in the refined pile and this other goes in the natural pile. <laughs> like, <laughs> right. like it doesn't exist. <laughs> I think people maybe think it exists, it doesn't exist. So your body will just break down what you eat into the smallest common denominator so that it can absorb it, right. you know? And, and nat like um, the sugar in fruit, for example, is processed slightly different because it has a different chemical structure to it. But say white bread or bread, period, starchy things will break down into glucose, which is the commonest, lowest common denominator, you know, and table sugar breaks down into one molecule of glucose and one molecule of fructose, you know, so I'm not, I, I'm not sure that you're going to be able to, your body's not going to be able to tell the difference. You know, it can tell the difference in terms of what else does that food offer? Does it offer other vitamins? Does it offer protein? You know, all of those things kind of affect how quickly you absorb different things and, and you know, your, your health overall in terms of are you, do you have enough vitamins and minerals in your diet, for example. But your body can't really tell the difference between the chocolate, the sugar that's in the chocolate and the sugar that's in, you know, that the bread breaks down into physiologically they're the same. So does that mean that we shouldn't necessarily see the sugar in chocolate as being worse than the sugar in potatoes? No, if we're just looking at the sugar, no, they're the, they would be the same. What I always want people to look at is what else is that food giving you? What other nutrients, what other nutritional value? Right. How, how else are those foods helping your health? Because that's really what it's all about, right? I want I want people to be healthy. I don't want them eating loads of fizzy drinks and things that have no other nutritional value to it. But I don't think getting really stressed out and upset because you 
need to put a little bit of sugar on your porridge in order to make it taste good that you want to eat it. I don't think that's a bad thing. Yeah. It's, I think we can get, when we're thinking about maybe weight loss, for example, mm. we can get a bit too fixated on sugar as the thing that's bad, the thing that we need to just kind of take out. Do you think we can get a bit too fixated on, like, that's the way that I'm going to lose out if I just remove sugar, whereas we might be more benef- might be more benefit if we pay attention to the nutritional value in food as a whole? Yeah, I find people tend to go to extremes. If they have a long history of dieting, they have very all-or-nothing thinking quite often. So it's either I eat sugar with reckless abandon or I eat no sugar at all. And people seem to really struggle with, well, where's the happy medium there? Yeah. You know, and, and I appreciate sometimes just telling people to eat a, quote, healthier diet is a bit too vague for them or they don't know what that means or... Um, which is why I tend to focus a lot on getting people to really pay attention to how food makes their body feel, you know, and how do they feel after they eat that and how long did, how long did it keep them full for and did they have lots of energy after or did it make them sleepy after and that's the kind of information I try and get people to pay attention to because that's that's their experience. It doesn't matter what the textbooks say, you know, that's their experience and that's what we need to go with, Mm. you know, and if, and many, and actually I think you were saying earlier that you, when you really pay attention, you can feel a change in your body after you eat sugar. Is that right? Yes. I think, I think kind of, yeah, as I, as I'm eating something and, um, some things, maybe some chocolate bars that I've had might be like, um, I've noticed that more instant kind of, like it's too intense mm. the effect of it so I think I kind of don't eat that type of chocolate anymore and I think I've liked darker chocolate more as I've got older because it's less sweet it's got more chocolate in it less sugar in it yeah. and um, yeah that just yeah so I can notice that instant effect as well and I and part and one of one of the things that kind of made me want to eat less milk chocolate as well is that if I'd had too much on one day would make me irritable the next day. Interesting. Yeah, and I started to notice that pattern and and um, just thought and, and realised several times that actually that's because that chocolate that I had yesterday. And those are the kinds of associations I really am encouraging clients to become aware of, right? Because avoiding chocolate or sugar, or pick out whatever food or ingredient you want, avoiding those things because someone else has told you to avoid it, yeah. but you don't really know why you're avoiding it, you know, is very different, I think, to, you know what, I'm choosing not to eat these foods. It's not that I can't, it's not that anything terrible is going to happen to me, but I'm choosing not to eat these foods because I know I feel rubbish when I do. Right. You know, that's a very different way of interpreting that information. Yeah. So you're using your real experience there, aren't you? Mm. Paying attention to it, tracking it. What impact does this food kind of have on you? Yeah. It's almost like you're doing a little mini experiment on yourself. Mm. You know, like, I really do encourage people, and even with, like, food sensitivities and things that are a bit more vague that we have no way to test for it, as an outsider, someone outside your body, I have no way of knowing whether that food is affecting you or not. Yeah. All I can do is help you kind of set up a, 
a little mini experiment to figure out, well, what are we tracking? You know, are we tracking your energy levels? Are we tracking some other symptom? What, did, what are we tracking? Kind of what's the baseline? What are you feeling at the moment? Make whatever change we're going to make, you know, adding something, taking something away. And do you feel different at the end of it? You know, and that's the only way really to know with 100% certainty what's right for you. You know, and so it's my job to help people do that. Because I think without a bit of guidance and support, the tendency is I'm going to change 50 things all at the same time. And then if you do feel better, you have absolutely no clue which one of those 50 things actually made any difference. Right, yeah. It's so tricky, isn't it? Because we eat so many different foods. Mm. We're eating, you know, three meals a day or a plus snacks probably. Yeah. That there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of variable food, isn't there, that can affect us in different ways. There is. And then if you add, you know, some people are affected by stress as well or hormonal changes. So then you've got all of it's sometimes incredibly difficult to kind of tease out or pull out from that all of that information. Well, what actually is the problem? And inevitably, it's maybe a couple of different things, you know, so maybe it's stress and something you're eating. Yeah. You know, or, you know, there's a variety of things that could be going on there. And it seems to me that it's related a lot to... Um, long-term conditions or um, I'm not quite sure about this but maybe conditions with medically unexplained symptoms as well and I think we're still discovering things about causation and mm-hmm. um, and um, maintenance here but a lot of our long-term conditions are like coronary heart disease we could you, we'd say that that's to do with a, that it's mediated by a diet that you've had um, we would you say that's a high sugar diet as has effects with coronary heart disease? Uh, it potentially it depends on what else you're eating, of yeah. course. It depends on how much sugar you're eating, how much sugar in relation to other stuff that has nutritional value. Are you underweight? Are you, you know, at a healthy weight for you? Do you have extra weight around your tummy? Like there's so many different variables. You right. can't ever just nail it down to one thing. That's the trouble with causation, isn't mm. it? It's, you can't go back and isolate something in, on its own. It's, there's always so many things going on. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So where you come in is you're helping people to um, get a better awareness of what they eat and how it impacts them by the sense of things. Yeah, I, I, I consider my role a lot in terms of being a detective almost uh-huh. to try and figure out what's the underlying root of the problem. You know, and so whether it's people that are underweight and struggling to gain weight, people that are carrying more weight than what they're comfortable with, I'm always trying to figure out what's the underlying cause of the problem. Is it what they're eating or the combination of what they're eating or or is it something else, you know, or like lack of sleep, stress levels, you know, not having any form of physical activity that they enjoy, you know, having no other way to treat or reward themselves other than food. I mean, nutrition is a really complex area and there's so many factors that affect it. Mm. I read somewhere that um, your eating habits, how you define your eating habits actually is a pretty good reflection of how you define the rest of your life (laughs) as well. And I think there actually might be something to that because it's just so complex. I think people come to a dietitian thinking that, oh, I'm just going to give you a diet sheet and send you on your way. And that's all there is to it. Like, well, you'll just tell me what to eat and that'll be the end of it. But anyone that's ever met me or has come to see me will know that that 
is like such a minuscule fraction of what I actually do. I'm trying to look at, you know, look at what blood tests have you had and how well are you sleeping and is, you know, do we need to track that? Do you have sleep apnea? You know, what medication are you on? What kind of side effects is that having on you? You know, what, what are your blood sugars in your body actually doing? Do you have some kind of secondary, you know, like medical condition like type 2 diabetes? You know, all of that I need to consider in addition to what you're eating, you right. know. And so my role is more to figure out is food actually the issue or is something else the issue? Okay. I consider that to be more my role. And then if food isn't the issue, then how can I either help the person or refer them on to somebody else who can help them? Okay, yeah. How important do you think variability is in diet? From an evolutionary perspective, I guess it's important that we kind of adapt, isn't it? Hmm. Those that don't adapt die out historically. In yes, that's true. As well. <laughs> and also, I know it's really important in terms of um, breaking patterns of behaviour. Is that often when people are suffering problems emotionally, psychologically, there's it's, it's because they've got into a, what you might call a, a narrowed behavioural repertoire. They keep doing the same thing or the same types of things to get the same effect so there's a lack of variability so um, feeling better is a lot to do with expanding your range of behaviors you make it more variable and you select things that actually have a better payoff for you and those around you and I was made me thinking about like I've had talk I've heard people talk about how a varied diet is good for you that you should try to different fruit and veg throughout the week, etc. Yeah. I was wondering what your view on that was. Yeah, no, I really like your example that you use there, that trying to encourage people to give them a wider repertoire, you know, on which to draw from. And actually, I think it's exactly the same with food. You know, people get really stuck in a rut, stuck in a pattern of eating the same foods day after day after day after day. You know, and then it... it any food, no matter how good it is, whether it's kale or broccoli or whatever, there's a, they have a limited number of vitamins and minerals in them, right? And so even if it's like the most incredibly quote-unquote perfect superfood that exists, if that's all you ate, you still would be malnourished because yeah. no one food is going to give you 100% of everything that you need. Uh -huh. And so because of that, the wider variety the greater your chances of ensuring that you get everything that you need, you know, because every food gives you something different. Even in fact, even where the food is grown, the nutrients in the soil affect the nutritional value of the food. So, you know, having a variety of food, of course, we want to encourage people to like eat locally and use farmers markets and those types of things. Um, but there is something to be said for, you know, if you sometimes need to eat frozen vegetables or things that have been come from somewhere else, that isn't necessarily a bad thing because they will probably have slightly different nutrient profile than what you grow locally. Right. Yes. That makes a lot of sense. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. So this, this blog post, what was it called again? The one about sugar? Uh, I think I called it just our... Are you addicted to sugar, or is it possible to be addicted from sugar? And what? I, I didn't think that you could be. <laughs> <laughs> well, you you know, um, yeah, it's got me thinking about a range of different things as well. Where can people read that blog post? Uh, people can get in touch on my website, which is eatgreatfeelgreat.co.uk, 
and I also have a Facebook page with the same title and I'm actually going to be transferring some of those Facebook posts onto my website very soon. Eat, sorry, eat. Eat great, feel great. .co.uk. That's right. Excellent. Thank you, Sherry. It's been great talking to you. It's been a really interesting subject. Thank you, Jim.